Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. You've been listening for the last few weeks. This is my last weekend in L.A. Believe it or not, me and Joanne, we fly back east on Saturday, and there's no looking back. And where I'm going to miss L.A., because I'll be honest, I love Burbank where I live, but it's just getting too crowded and too expensive. But the thing I'm going to miss most is... I can walk everywhere in Burbank. If I want to go to the supermarket, if I want to go down the street and have a beer, I can walk. In South Jersey, where I'm going, there's stuff around, but nobody walks. I swear to God, if you see some guy walking down the street in South Jersey, a lot of times I think people go either his car got stolen or he's a DUI because it just it doesn't happen. So anyway, it's going to be interesting, people, but Cooper Talk will go on. I'll just be uh, recording from Marlton, so I'm going to have to reschedule my schedules because all my shows I'll be recording later. And uh, my guest today is uh, originally from the East Coast. He's, a, he's an awesome guitarist. He's been around for a long time. His name is Brian Forsyth. How you doing, Brian? Hey, good. So, so now you're, you're from Maryland originally. Yeah, yeah. Now, in fact, I'm flying back. I'm flying back to Maryland on Sunday. Oh, really? Do you guys have a gig back there, or what's going on? Yeah, I've got a few gigs coming up this this uh, next week. I have uh, three Rhino Bucket shows and one Kick show. It's awesome. Where where on the East Coast? Or where will they be? Uh, around Maryland, the the um, the Kick show is the M3 Festival, and Rhino Buckets Kicks is headlining Friday night, and then Rhino Buckets. Opening the day on Sunday, uh, Saturday. So that's, that's you're doing a little double duty, but it's it's good, man. It's that it's, it must it, that must be when we're talking about your career. But what's that like as a musician? Because you know, we, I mean, I did comedy for a long time, and you know, when you get off the stage, you have that rush. And now for you, you know, usually when you play a gig, let's say on a Friday night, you get done, you have all day Saturday to chill. What's it like when you get done the gig? Like let's let's say this week, the weekend where you're playing the festival. You play on a Friday night, you come off stage, you have the adrenaline pumping. It's hard to sleep. I mean, that's just a given. And then you have to be back basically like early Saturday morning. How does your how does your body you know, adapt to that? Because it probably doesn't happen a lot where it's a situation where you play a night and then the next day. Yeah, that that is a hard one to get used to. We did it one year, not last, was it the year before last, I think? Um, a similar thing. Um, but I, I wake up pretty early, so it's not too bad for me. And so, plus I don't, I don't drink anymore or do drugs. So, you know, it's not too bad. <laughs> right. But, I mean, I, I can see like, you know, other guys or like the other guys in Rhino Bucket, they, uh, you know, they, they love to drink beer and stuff. So I'm sure Friday night, well, they don't play on Friday I'm the only one that's playing. Right. So, <laughs> so they're, they're going to have a, probably have a big party on Friday night. <laughs> they got to get up early on, on Saturday. Right. Now, how did you start? I mean, you've been playing music forever. I know I was reading some of your bio. Well, you, you started, you started getting into music like, like at a very young age, like, like at three or I mean, what, what started your whole path to playing guitars? I know you played guitar in high school. I mean, you were playing gigs in high school, not that's like picking it up. How did the whole process start where you started this career that's lasted for years? Well, it, it um, my parents were, were into music, like listening to music. And, and uh, so there was always like music playing around the house and stuff. And it just caught my ear. Like certain things caught my ear. Like my, my, uh, my father was more into like jazz and stuff like that. And, 
that I it didn't really sink in for me. But occasionally, like my mom would go buy just whatever, like Elvis or or Johnny Cash, and um, so when I heard like say Johnny Cash and I heard like the guitar, for some reason that just connected. And and uh, and then of course, you know, a few years later the Beatles came along and and uh, I saw them on Ed Sullivan and and that just like you know that that was it. As soon as I saw that, I I knew what I was going to do. So you knew it, I mean, you knew it at a really young age. I mean, you know, because we all go back and forth. You know, like when I was little, I wanted to be the sportscaster. You know, there's stuff also. We want to be stuff that we're, we're never be able to do. Like, you know, yeah, hey, I want to be an athlete. Yeah, well, guess what? I'm I'm, five, I'm, I'm small. I'm not going to be an athlete. But for you, I mean, so you really knew and you really knew where you were going at a young age. Yeah, I got, well, I didn't know that it, you know, at that young age, I didn't even know what was possible yet, but I loved it. So I was obsessed with it, and uh, I would pretend to play guitar way back then, you know, at six years old or whatever it was. And, and uh, But I was also into art, too, so, you know, I didn't know. I thought, maybe I'll be a cartoonist, you know, and so I kind of bounced back back and forth between art and music, you know, most of, most of my childhood. But, you know, by the time I got to junior high school and I really got serious about playing guitar, um, it just took up all my time. So then the, the art kind of took uh, a backseat at that point. I got a question for you because, you know, the time, I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and they had a very good marching band. And when you were younger, people would play instruments like my brother played the drums and then you go into the marching band. When you're a guitarist, let's say in seventh and eighth grade in junior high, when you get to high school... And especially the school you went to, was there an outlet for your music? Because you know you don't see a guy walking in a marching band strumming a you know a six string. It just doesn't happen. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. you'd be like, "Holy crap, this is amazing!" You know, so so when you when you're going, how do you sit there and think, "How can I get more involved with music?" Because the guitar player doesn't really have that outlet. Well, uh, I don't know the the whole that whole band thing at high school didn't even dawn on me. It didn't even, it didn't attract me. Uh, I, at one point there was a, uh, they had this jazz ensemble thing which involved a guitar player and I actually went and tried out for that but, but the problem is <laughs> I don't read music and all those guys were just like whizzes at reading music and I remember, <laughs> I remember going in there and I was, I was just winging it. I had no idea what I was doing in and they start playing this song, and somehow I sort of scrounged together the, the basic chords and stuff to, to get by. And uh, at, at one point, the, the band leader points at me, like, to do a solo, like, out of the blue. I wasn't even, like, ready for it, and I, I totally blew it. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I, I didn't make it into that. So that was the closest that I came to, to participating other than, um, like earlier in, in junior, I mean, uh, elementary school, I took violin for a while and was in the school little orchestra thing. But, you know, that was just, I was winging it there, too, because I couldn't read music. <laughs> so, so you know, when, do you, when do you put your first band together? And, and I don't know if this is true, because I read up and stuff, but then you got found, you met your future bandmates at a 7-Eleven? 
Yeah, Ronnie. I met Ronnie at a Seven Eleven. But I would. I was already playing. You know, I was. Um, how old was I when I met him? I was already twenty years old by that point. But you know, way back in junior highs when I started, uh, you know, trying to find people to play with, because they used to have. Um, they had this thing called the Coke Hour. Not cocaine, right. but Coca-Cola. <laughs> um, yeah, back in the day they had this. Everyone come out to the Coke Alley. <laughs> Families, kids, yeah. come on down. So they, they had this thing, and it, was, it, it took place like right after, right after school, when school ended, and it would be in the cafeteria, and they'd have bands playing, and they'd you know, be bands from the, the kids at school. And I remember the first time I, I went down the hall, and I heard this band playing, and I go in there and watch them, and it's like, Wow you know, a real live band. And uh, and actually I made friends with the uh, the guitar player in that band. He was um, he was left handed and he was about four years older than me and he kinda took me under his wing and he taught me a lot of stuff. And in fact I started out left handed and he's the guy that taught me into switching over to right handed. Okay. Cause I was sort of flip-flopping like I, I could play either way but uh it felt more comfortable left-handed <clears throat> but i'd have to flip it over to to figure out the chords right-handed and then i'd flip it back left-handed and transpose and this guy actually uh he's the guy that goes well, you know you're sort of just starting out anyway why don't you just do it right-handed it's a lot easier to find a guitar you don't have to go you know get some special guitar and and he used to play a, he just played an upside down sg uh, anyway, I think I'm getting off track from the question. Oh, no, it's fine. No, no, because I, I always love stories like this. Because, you know, it's just funny because, you know, there's a lot, a lot of, le- there's not a lot of left-hand players. I mean, so, and, and I guess, you know, when it comes to getting a guitar, it would be a pain in the ass because they're not going to make a shitload of left-hand guitars when there's only a small percentage of lefty guitar players. Yeah, that's what the guy said. It's hard to find a good one because you have to take what you get. So, so you started playing in... in the junior high bands, and then you went through in high school, you started playing in bands. Were you getting gigs in high school? Yeah, it was not, you know, nothing special, but, you know, here and there we'd play for some church thing or on a, on a little outdoor, uh, you know, carnival thing, you know, in near our neighborhood, stuff like that. And, and uh, But, it, you know, it sort of kept growing from there. And by the time I got to... Uh, Right out of high school, I actually dropped out after the 11th grade, so I didn't go back on for my senior year. And that's when I, I you know, in, in the the the, uh, the musicians kept getting a little better that I was playing with along the way. Like, I'd, I'd find better people to play with. And I was constantly, like, going to parties where there'd be people jamming, and I'd just sit in and jam. It's like, no matter, you know, I just was in constant constant search of somewhere to play and and uh and finally i met these guys we put this band together and uh and the bass player the bass player had uh his father was a a vet an ex-vet and and as long as this guy stayed in school he got this money from I guess his father was dead by then but he would get this money so he goes well I'm going to go to college down in Alabama so we all moved down there 
so he could get this money to sort of sustain the band. And and uh, so he was going to like some classes down there while we were playing around. And that was um, that was right at the end of 1975, uh, the beginning of 76. And we moved to Florence, Alabama, which is right right across the river from uh, Muscle Shoals, where you know the you know all the studios and stuff right. are. And and um, that was like the coolest experience I could have ever had. I was like 18 when I went down there, and uh, and we we got a couple other. It was just three of us that went. It was me, the bass player, and the drummer. And then uh, and then we added another guitar player and a keyboard player. And then at one point we all kind of backed up this country singer guy and went on a tour with him. And I mean, played all kinds of gigs all over the place, down all around like like Alabama, um, Georgia, Tennessee, uh, Florida, Mississippi. Like, we were just all over the place. It, it was such a, a cool learning experience at, at that point in my life. And I even got to meet, uh, like, all those Muscle Shoals musician guys, like, you know, Roger Hawkins and and Pete Carr and, and who's that bass player, David Hood, I think his name was. Right. I met all those guys. So it was it was just so cool. It was a life, it just just this cool life experience at that point in my life when I was just starting out, you know. So you had this experience, but so then, but what were you, at that point? And it must have been, as I said, fascinating too, because you know, Muscle Schultz, you know, you, you know, it's it's in uh, different songs, and it must have been an amazing time. But then, what at that point, what was going through your mind as in a direction of? Were you saying, I want to build this into my career? Did you, were you thinking, I want to stay down south? I mean, what was going through your mind? Because you're a young guy, and you're, you're, you're performing, you're doing what you love. What do you decide to do? Well, I was just sort of taking it as it came. I wasn't really thinking that far ahead, really. And, and this band that we had, it was more like southern rock style. I mean, we did some ZZ Top and stuff. Well, I guess that is still southern Texas. But, uh, yeah, I just, I didn't think that far ahead. And, but I knew eventually I'd come back home because, uh, you know, I was still kind of young and I was kind of missing home. And, and eventually that band kind of fizzled out and we did come back. And, and, uh, but I continued on with the bass player with another configuration. And, that, in fact, that band lasted up until probably six months before... Uh, I ran into Ronnie at that 7-Eleven. Now, so, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so, so, you know, so I was, so that kind of almost ran right into the next thing. So when you met him, like, were, did they know of you? Was there a thing where, because you're in a town in Maryland that the musicians were very, as I said, it's before the internet, it's before all that stuff. So what, did you guys know of different musicians? And, and is that how they knew you or they recognized you? Or, I mean, how how they sit there and come up to you and, start talking to you at a 7-Eleven. Yeah, I knew Ronnie, actually. He went to a, a different high school, but, you know, we, we both played with, uh, you know, this mutual musicians, like, because, you know, it was like a rotating thing. Everybody played with somebody at some point. And, and I'd never played with Ronnie, but I'd seen a, a, a couple of his bands. I'd gone out to see him play, and... And in fact, my the bass player that I had gone to Alabama with owned a PA system, and he used to rent it out to Ronnie's band, to one of Ronnie's bands, and I would go along and, and you know watch the gig. So, so I 
kind of knew Ronnie, not real well, but, you know, we were both guitar players, so we talked guitars. And So when he saw me in that 7-Eleven, the, the, the funny thing was, I had just tried out for, he had just left this band that he was in, and I had just tried out for that, for his spot. Because it was a, an established, it was just a cover band, but it was an established band that had gigs. So I, you know, I thought, well, this is cool. I'll just jump into this band. They already have gigs. And then I run into Ronnie, and he goes, "Oh man, you don't want to play with those guys." <laughs> he goes, they, "They're not. They're never going to go anywhere. They're, they're, uh, you know, they never practice. They just want to play the same old songs they've been playing for years." And he goes, uh, "I got this other thing. This guy Donnie Purnell is starting this band, and it's, it's. A, he wants to do original music and get a record deal. And I never thought about that part of it either. You know, the whole record deal. I mean, it was kind of like this dream, but I never." You know, I thought, well, how do you do that? You know, I had no clue. So Ronnie mentions this, and, the, you know, the funny thing was, I didn't just jump on and go, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I, In my mind, I'm going back and forth thinking, huh, do I want to go join a band that already has gigs and already has a name, and, and, you know, I could just start playing and working right away, or do I want to start over from from scratch with these guys? So I had to think about it. So I told Ronnie, oh, I'll think about it. <laughs> and then the next day, uh, the drummer that was involved at that time called me, and he actually talked me into at least trying it out to see how it felt. And uh, and then they, they all came over to my, my parents. I was still living at home at that point. So we all went down into my parents' basement and uh, and just put, it, put a few songs together and something just clicked. So it clicks, and now you have the band. Now, what was the what was the first name of the band? Was it Shoes? Yeah, yeah, S H O O Z E. Now, now, how'd you come up with that name, and how'd you switch from that to Kicks? And how'd you get the spelling of Kicks? Well, uh, I remember at one point we we're we we're all sitting down in my my parents' basement, <laughs> and we're all like throwing names around, and and. Uh, you know, there was a bunch of names. I don't even remember any of the other ones. But at one point, the drummer, he's just sitting there, and he kind of looks down at his feet, and he goes, why don't we call it the shoes? <laughs> <laughs> and and everybody kind of laughed, and I go, yeah, we could spell it S-H-O-O-O-Z-E. And for some reason, everyone goes, huh, maybe we should. And and so that, that was that's how that happened. And then we kept that name. All the way up until we got um, signed. Well, actually, yeah. All the way up until that point. And, but the thing was that, oh no, right before we got signed, we, we changed it because there was another band in the Midwest called The Shoes, but they were spelled S-H-O-E-S, like regular shoes. But they had a, actually had a song on the radio. So we thought, well, I guess we're gonna have to change the name. So we changed it to the generators right before we got our record deal. And uh, we did, we recorded the record as the generators and we were, they were putting the album art together and they, they searched the name real quick before they did it and found out there was a band in Cleveland called the generators. And they even got in contact with the manager and, and offered to buy the name 
Actually, I think they cheaped out. They they, they offered to <laughs> let the band record a single on Atlantic in exchange for their name. And they said no. <laughs> no. They want they want to keep the name. <laughs> so so we had it so here it was. And with no name and we had to get it we had to have a name by it by the next day so they could go it could go into print. And uh Donnie had played in a band called Jax, I think it was, J A X. And I don't know, there, there was another band called Kicks that he was involved in maybe too, but they, and then they changed their name to Jax. So he thought, oh, what, why don't we call it Kicks but spell it K-I-X? Kind of like the three letter thing. And I remember thinking, ah, you know, that's not the greatest name, but I guess so. And I think everybody else had that same feeling, like, ah, I don't know, I guess, and like we're, we're pressured into it because we, we only had a little bit of time. We had to like hurry up and make this decision. So that's the only reason it ended up kicked. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you know, it's funny. You said, you know, you had signed uh, to Atlantic. How did you get to that point? Because, you know, you said you were playing originals. And I know because I grew up in South Jersey and there was a lot of, I mean, that in that time frame in the, like the 80s and that area, there was cover bands played everywhere, you know, and the cover bands got paid, you know, they, they had big followings. Mm-hmm. How did you guys get gigs when you were playing originals did you have to mix some covers in or did you just walk in and say here's what we're playing we're playing originals and then how did the record company how did the record company find you uh well we did start out playing covers because that that was the only way to get gigs and we would do uh you know three sets a night the three sets a night thing and uh so we what we did was we, we actually did we we'd uh sneak our our originals in there and we did it from the beginning, from the very beginning. And eventually, by, by um, you know, late 79, 1980, we had a whole set of originals by that point. So we would, and we, we had built up a following because we had been playing like nonstop. So we were able to uh, sort of do the, the first couple sets of, uh, of covers and we even kind of slimmed it down because we, at some point, we discovered ACDC, and that really influenced like the songwriting and, and the feel of the band. So we kind of narrowed it down to a, like a set of Led Zeppelin, and we do like this kind of like a Zeppelin medley thing, and then and then the, the next set would be an ACDC set, and then the, then the last set would be our 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 songs. Okay. So that's what it got down to, and and by that point, and the and Donnie, the, the bass player, he was very like uh, focused on getting this record deal, and uh, we were opening for another band from Baltimore called Face Dancer, and they had a deal with Capital, so we got in touch with their manager and asked their manager if he'd manage us and get us a deal. So he's the guy that. Um, that got us a record deal and the way he did it like we did have a, a proper demo but um he actually took cassette tapes and he would stick them in there was a cassette player on we had this uh, like console or sound console and we had you know all the effects and then we had a 
uh, cassette deck in there, and he would stick this cassette in there and record the band live just from the board. It was a board tape, and he'd do that every night. And then he'd take the tape and he'd stick it in the envelope and send it off to some different record company. So I don't know how many he sent out, but he sent a bunch of those out. And Atlantic was the only one that called back. And so Atlantic, well, back then was uh, was Hammerjacks a big gig for you guys? Was that like the the place where guys in Maryland wanted to play? Was that like the co- the the club that bands wanted to play at? It, Hammerjacks wasn't even there yet. Oh, Actually, really? I okay. think they had. Uh, there may have been the, there was the original version of it, which was some little little tiny place, and but we met those Hammerjacks people. Somehow they, they knew about us. So right when our record came out, our first record, we actually did our record release party at the original Hammerjacks, which was like, it was like a row house down on, in Baltimore. I mean, it was a tiny little club, but it was like three stories. It was cool. It was a cool place because they had the, the middle of it hollowed out. So you could go all the way up to the third floor and look down all the way down to the bottom. So, it was almost like the the Hammerjack staff became Kicks fan. So when the new place opened, we were like, you know, we were in. In fact, I think we we were the first band to, to open the place. Now you got you got the record deal. What is that like when you're? And it, it it seemed pretty happened. Not it didn't take that long for you guys. It, did you have trepidation? Were you sitting there nervous about the first record? And and or did you feel like you had been playing? You had the the chops because you've been playing these original songs. And when you went in to record, what songs did you pick? I mean, because you probably had a bunch of different songs. And, and who had that, the selection process? Was it you or was it the label? Or how did you put that first album together? Uh, it was the producer, actually. Because we, uh, yeah, we had a bunch of songs. I forget how many songs were on that first demo, but it was a bunch. Because, uh, you know, we started in, we started in December 77. And... You know, and then we got signed right at the end of 1980, like the beginning of 81. So, you know, there's a lot of songs in between those, in between that time. So, yeah, the, the producer, it, it, it was mostly his say. He, he picked the songs to put on the record. So how was the reception of the first album? And were you, and were you personally, were you guys as a band, were you satisfied with what the final product was? Yeah, I think so at the time. I mean, when I listen back to it now, it really sounds, you know, it's, it's unique sounding. <laughs> it sounds different. It, it doesn't sound like any of the, the, the later albums. But, uh, yeah, it's, that's what we sounded like back then, at that point in our career. And, uh, and like you said before, you know, you're asking about if we were nervous going into it. But no, nah, because we had been playing, we knew these songs inside and out. It was like a it was like a piece of cake. We just kind of go in there and do them. And, and it was funny because the the producer tried to do a, a couple little uh, like arrangement things, like rearrangements, and uh, and we'd always go back to the original. Like we try it, and he'd go, "Nah, nah, just do what you were doing." <laughs> so it, they were they were pretty much the way that we had them. So you get it done, and now. Where is your career still going from there? Are you still playing in clubs? When do you guys start touring? Is that after the second? When do you go out on the bigger tours and, and getting, start getting away from playing the clubs? Mm, we, you know what? The, the clubs pretty much lasted our whole career. And I think right after the first record, 
we would start getting a couple like one-off bigger gigs like uh well the, the first one was um in baltimore at the baltimore civic center we opened for uh um, Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. That was like our first big opener thing. And it's so funny because all the Hammerjacks people were there in the audience, all, all, you know, all the staff <laughs> of Hammerjacks, <laughs> like our big fans. Um, so that was that was our very first opener. And then after that, we would get little thi- like things here and there. Like we, we, we actually got to open for ZZ Top for two shows up in uh, Pennsylvania. And and then a little while later, we got to do three Aerosmith shows, and that was when um, when Joe Perry and Brad Whitford were in the band. So I guess that was still 1981 at that point. And then uh, later on, like the end of 81, maybe the beginning of 82, somewhere around there, I forget, I don't remember exactly, but um, we got. Then we we did a few smaller. Uh, we did a um, a tour with the Romantics. Remember that band? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't an arena tour. It was just a club tour. Like we did a few larger, like theater things, and then we got on to the. We did. We got a um, Grand Funk tour, which was really cool. But that that involved a little of both. Like we did like the Agora, and Cleveland, and Akron, and then and then we do. Uh, a couple of arenas here and there. We did like, and we went all down through the Midwest and ended up in like Shreveport, uh, Louisiana. So that, that, yeah, I guess we're starting to get some gigs, but we were still, I mean, it wasn't like tour bus stuff because we were still driving ourselves. We had our own van and a, and a rider truck with our gear. So, uh, <laughs> so it was still, Sort of like a club tour, except bigger venues. Right. So now I know, but back, like I think you said, your, your eventually your first arena tour was in like '88, I believe, with Rat. What? How did you get to that point for that? I mean, was it the, was the album being popular? Were your albums being popular? Were, was were you getting a following? Was the industry noticing you? I mean, how does a band go from playing clubs to getting to an arena tour? And at that time, Rat was huge. How does that? How does that happen? Is that just management does that for you, or it's just because? someone sees you and goes, we got to put these guys on tour. Yeah, you know, I don't know exactly how that came about. But yeah, by that point, you know, that was our fourth record. And our third record kind of, like each record did a little better than the one before. And the third record, um, you know, we started getting played here and there on MTV a little bit. And, and, uh, you know, so people knew who we were. And and also the third record we we uh, the producer was Bo Hill which was Rat's producer and so I don't know how the Rat thing came about but it was um, it may have had something to do with that like the Bo Hill connection um, but we were starting to um, I guess other bands thought well we'll take those guys out because they're they're a cool band but I think it was weird because back then you know. I think we intimidated a lot of bands too with our live show and they were scared to take us out. But Rat was the first band that took that chance and, and actually took us out. What made, and, your, uh, what made your show so intimidating? Oh, we were a hard act to follow. <laughs> you know, nobody wanted, to, wanted us going on before them. 
I mean, we had a lot of experience with bands opening for us, but and then going on, you know, with their careers, and but they'd never like come back and get us and take us along, and we always wondered about that. <laughs> well, I think that might have been why, you know, they, they, it was like, wow, I don't want those guys opening for us, and we gotta, you know, then we gotta follow them. <laughs> we gotta work. We gotta actually have to work. Wait a second, we gotta work on stage because they just blew the roof off. I mean, that's always funny when I did comedy. That was the thing too. You know, back then, you know, we had a competitiveness. You know, the Philadelphia comedy scene. It was like you have a good set, and you tell someone, yeah. You walk on the stage, you go follow that. You know, and it was a camaraderie. But now, like in L.A., a lot of these acts they won't bring a strong second act on because they go, oh my god, they, they're, this guy's gonna have a great set, and I gotta work. I just want this person to be average so that it makes me look that much better. Uh huh. <laughs> so, what was it like the arena tour? What was it like solving and sit there and go, okay, we have a bunch of dates in an arena tour. Every night you're guaranteed a pretty good crowd. That must be great and a great feeling as a band. And you guys, I mean, you were growing through the ranks and you've been around for a while. I mean, that must be like something like a, like the, what you aim for. Oh, yeah. And you know what the funny thing was, too? It's, uh, you know, we were used to driving, like driving ourselves and like just these grueling drives and then playing for, I mean, our sets were at least an hour and a half, but sometimes longer, you know, in the clubs. Like, in the early days, you'd do three smaller sets, but then it got to where, you you know, by the time we are you know, with the record deal and all, it was just one big, long set. So, you know, sweating it out in those sweaty clubs. So by the time we got to the Serena tour, it was like a piece of cake because we were the, the opener opener. Like, you know, there was us, then there was Britney Fox, then there was Rat. So... We had 30 minutes, and we go on like 7.30, and maybe sometimes we go on at 8. So we were done We were done by 8 or 8.30 every night, and just barely breaking a sweat by that point. And then we had a tour bus. We didn't have to drive, so you just go in there and lay down. <laughs> you know, it's like, like it was so easy. And, and you know, the, we didn't have to move equipment. By that point, I had a guitar tech that was tuning my guitars. I didn't even have to tune my guitar. So, yeah, it was super easy. <laughs> In fact, it was almost too easy. But we, but we're also one of those bands. We, you know, once we got to that point, we didn't think, "Oh, this is it. We're never going to play a club again." You know, as soon as that that tour was over, we we're back in the clubs until the next thing. You know. Now you're still this whole time, but you guys are still writing. How are you? How are you getting the time to write uh, new material? Because you had so much, you know, free time, I guess, because you're traveling. But did you? Would you be able to slip a new song in your 30 minute set, or was it pretty very rigorous? Uh, but basically, you play this song, this song, this song, this song. Well, yeah. Well, on the, those tours, we just stick to like the you know album songs, the ones that, that people would know. Um, but as far as like sneaking like new stuff in, we would do that all the time at clubs. Like we would play, uh, like before we would even get to go record a record, we'd already played all those songs out live like for months. So it was easier to do it in a club situation, you know, sneak in a new one in. But, but if you only have like a half hour, you have to sort of shave it down to just the songs that people are going to know. 
Now, then you ended up on the Tesla and the Great White Tour. And I know at that point, a single was released off your album or your album was done or the record company told you the album was done. What happened with that? I mean, how did, how did you get to that point? Oh, that was, that was blowing my fuse. And um, I forget, uh, I think we had a longer set on that tour. That was a good tour. I remember playing maybe even an hour I forget. I, I, it's so hard to remember everything. But um, so we were, we actually were doing the "Don't Close Your Eyes" on that tour, but it wasn't a single, and um, they weren't going to release it. And the, but we were playing it every night. I, I guess you must, you must have heard this story. But um, so yeah, Atlantic said the record's done. Start after this tour. Start thinking about the next record. And um, is it Alan Niven? Uh, I think I got his name wrong on another podcast. I just thought of that. Is it? Al- I think it's Alan Niven, the um, the manager for Great White, and he was also Guns N' Roses manager at the time. He heard that song and he um, and he goes, uh, "How come Atlantic hasn't released that song as a single?" And you know, we said, "Well, you know, I guess." They told us the record was done, <laughs> and he goes, ah. so he go, he went about that, and he goes, yeah, but they're you know they, they just don't they're not interested. And so Alan Niven goes, well, how about if I go talk to them and um, and see if I can convince them? And you know, yeah, Guns N' Roses was huge at the time, so so he goes and talks to Atlantic, and and the next thing we know, Atlantic's uh, putting out that song as a single. And then that kind so of pulled, if it wasn't, oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, if it wasn't for him, that would never would have happened. But that, and then that catapulted you like, in Japan. They loved you off that. Oh yeah, yeah. The first trip to Japan was oh, that was incredible. How but did, actually, I think we might have. I think we might have gone. Oh no, you're right. Yeah, that was after the single came out. You're right. Now, what's that like? Because I heard Japanese, I heard Japanese fans and and met, and heavier band fans in uh, South America are just the most insane when it comes to the genre of music, and they're crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. It felt like uh, yeah. Well, the first time we went to Japan, it felt like uh, like the, a mini Beatlemania, <laughs> sort of like the smaller crowd. But 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 yeah, we got to the we land at the airport and. There's a crowd of kids with with banners and signs and records they want us to sign and 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 like guys dressed like me. It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> but and then they follow us around like like they got to um, we were staying at this hotel and they actually had the they had the the promoter hired these security guys to sort of drive us around and take care of us and we couldn't leave that hotel without getting mobbed. It was crazy. And you'd look out and there wouldn't be anybody out there and you'd go, okay, now we can go. And we'd like go out the front door and it, and it would be like cockroaches coming out of every crevice. Like all of a sudden these kids would just come from nowhere, like out of alleys, behind cars, and they would just surround us and start taking pictures. And I mean, it was cool. They were very polite about it, but, but it was kind of, it was weird. Yeah. And it got to the point where they, the security guys had to, like, take us down to elevator. They, they had to, first they had to 
block it off so nobody could get into the hotel because they were start at first they would get into the hotel and they'd circle the hallways looking for us. <laughs> so they made it so that nobody could come in unless they were they had a room there. So all the kids had to stay outside. So then it got to the point where they were taking us down the elevator all the way down into the uh, parking garage, and uh, and then we'd get in the car and then they'd take us out that way. That's just—I mean—and that's before that's before social media. Just think how it is now. I mean, if someone would tweet, "Hey, they're at this hotel," and then everyone would be coming out of the woodworks. Oh yeah, I know. Well, and the other thing was we—we we, uh, that was in uh, Tokyo, and then we went down to Osaka, and we took the um, the bullet train, and at every stop on that bullet train, there was a little crowd of kids at at the stop. Like waving and, and holding our records up, it was like the craziest thing. It's like how they know we we're going to be coming through here. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so you guys are doing well. What what happened when you start? You guys broke up. What what happened there? Well, that happened. Uh, I left in '93, like the beginning of '93, uh, and then they went on. I think they they sort of stretched out to around ninety five, and then it finally fell apart. But um, why did you? I leave? just um, why did I leave? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I kind of got disillusioned. You know, um, blow my fuse was like you know the most successful record, and we had that huge hit single, and then we'd go in and we do Hot Wire, which. I thought it was a great record too. And we all thought it was a slam dunk, you know, okay, there's the big record and now here's the follow up that's just as good or even better. You know, now now we're gonna like be like the next A C D C or whatever. You know, we think we're thinking that finally maybe this is gonna happen because it's you know, it had already been ten years or something. So uh we put that record out and, you know, of course, uh, the whole Nirvana thing happened right then and there, right as soon as that came out, right before it was released. I think the week before our record came out, Nirvana's record came out. And uh, so, I mean, we sold a few records before it finally died, but it didn't take long before, it, 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 you know, you could see it starting to slowly sink. You know, the ship was sinking. And, and um and it had been such a long climb to get to where we were. And then I saw that and it was like going all the way back down. And I'm thinking, oh, man, <laughs> like it's never going to happen. And there were other things besides that going on with the, in, within the band, you know, just tension. And, and for me, it, it got to, to the point where it just wasn't any fun anymore. And, it, and the fact that it was starting to go back down it just wasn't worth it for me to stay anymore. And I just, it was like, okay, I guess this is it for me. I, I need to try something else. So, so that's when I left and then I moved out here to LA. So I've been out here since 93. So when you moved out here, you, it must've been a new beginning. I mean, you were known, it's not like you were just some musician coming in off the streets. You know what I mean? You were in a band, you've toured the world, you've done more than most musicians could ever hope for. I mean, to be honest, you know, it's not, you know, I don't know, I don't know, you know, except for the guests on my show, you know, I don't know many guys who I see 
hanging out, you know, with, you know, who said they're in a band who actually, you know, got chased down on the train in Japan. You know what I mean? So you, you, you had lived a rock star life. So now, now, did you, were you excited when you moved back out here or were you just like, I got to start over? Or were you just bothered, just tired of the damn music business? Well, I actually, I put together a band before I came out here. Like the, the, like four or five months prior to me leaving, I was flying out here like uh, once a month when there'd be a, a few days break here and there. I'd fly out here because I had so many frequent flyer miles from going to Japan a couple times. Um, so I'd fly out here and, and uh, I had met uh, Eric Stacy from Faster Pussycat and, um, and we started writing songs together and so we, him and I put this band together with a drummer, drummer from Junkyard and, and uh, a couple other guys, this really good singer guy. And, and we, uh, we put some songs together and then recorded this demo. And I remember as soon as I heard, and this is when I, I was still living on the East Coast. I was still in Kicks at this point when we recorded this demo. And as soon as I heard that, the finished product, I went, okay. I guess it's this is what I'm going to leave kicks for. So I went back home and I and I told those guys. I gave them like two week notice. <laughs> actually, what I did was I uh, I actually contacted um, Jimmy K, the, the this guitar player that he did a little bit of fill in for Ronnie at one point. Ronnie had to go to rehab, and uh, he was living up in New York. So I called him up and I go, Hey, Jimmy, I'm thinking about. I hadn't even told the band yet. And I said I'm thinking about leaving the band. I said, would you be interested in, in taking my place if I leave? And he goes, yeah. So he came down to my house, and I, I sat there for like a week and went over every song and showed him all my parts and, and, and got them all prepared. I even did a little videotape of me playing all the songs, and then I went and told those guys that I was leaving. And I said, but I got a replacement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so... so uh, Life in L.A., I know that a few years after you got out here, you had some issues, and how did you rebound from that? How did you get back on track and get basically re-stimulated again? Because I think a lot of times you had such a long career, and you know you ran into some, you know, I know, problems with the law and uh, drugs. How did you sit there and find your way back? Because, you know, now you have, you know... Kick still plays. You have Rhino Bucket. How do you sit there and get that back? Because you've been for you've been playing for so long. How did you find? How did you revitalize yourself? Um. Well, I mean, the whole time, even during my really bad drug days, I was still playing like constantly, doing gigs, and um, I was playing in several bands at, at once. I don't know how I was doing it and working, trying to work until the last year. Then I couldn't work, but. Um, I um, pretty much, you know, just just by going through the rehab thing and and uh, and getting sober, it cleared totally cleared my head and and uh, you know it it did give me a new motivation and and uh, and I was still work I was still working a day job at that point I had to get a uh, well I was still in the sober living house they sent me out to get a job. I needed a job, <laughs> and uh, I I got a job at a, a pet clinic, and um, and I had that job for twelve years, 
and somehow still uh, still play music with that thing going on too. But it's it's funny the Rhino Bucket thing came along right after I got sober. Like I, I knew I knew those guys before. Like I played in a blues band with with Reeve, the bass player, and then jammed with. Uh, then we got together with George at some point and and did a couple gigs. But it wasn't Rhino Bucket. It was uh, it was called Deep Six Holiday. So when after I got sober, that's when those guys decided to put Rhino Buck, Bucket back together, and. Um, they called me up and said, you want to play guitar? Because the, the original guy didn't want to do it. And um, and, that, and that's the other thing. After I got sober, you know, I, I was trying to think, you know, okay, what am I going to do? Like, what am I really into? And then those guys call me. And they go, hey, uh, Ricky Rackman's doing the, this Cat House reunion thing, and he wants Rhino Bucket to play it. Uh, do you want to do it? And I said, Sure. And then they were talking about continuing on as Rhino Bucket. And, and I remember thinking, do I want to go back into that whole thing again? And I was kind of hesitant at first, but it's funny. It's almost like, you know, when you get into a band, it's almost like getting into a new relationship. It's like you sort of test it out for a while, and the next thing you know, you're in you're in it. <laughs> you know, and it, right. it's like, oh, now it's too late to leave. I mean, that's how I do all my relationships, too. <laughs> but uh, so before I knew it, I was I was in Rhino Bucket. But the thing was, you know, I, I had to learn all the, the, the old songs. So all the old guitar players part. And then then we got a, 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 a soundtrack for a movie. And we, we had to write a bunch of new songs. And that's when it kind of started to fall into place for me. And I really like fell in love with that band. So that band, you know, we were up and running by the time Kicks came back around. So, so um, uh, you know, I couldn't, I didn't want to let Rhino Bucket thing go, and I still haven't. <laughs> in fact, today is the big release date for the new Rhino Bucket record. Okay, no, no. So, so that's now. Where is it being released? Where can people find it? Um, Amazon, iTunes, you know. To all the normal places. It's on Acetate Records. But yeah, today's the official day that, that it's out. Um, and I've been, uh, you know, Kicks got back together in two, the end of 2003. Yeah, how'd that come about? Like, uh, Well, Steve called me up and uh, he had a band called Funny Money that did a bunch of Kicks songs. And they were playing around, and then Ronnie had a band called Blues Vultures that would open for them. So they'd do gigs together, and then at the end of the night, Ronnie would jump up there with them and do kick songs with them. And and I guess it became this thing, like the, the club owner would request it. He'd go, hey, if you guys do that thing, I'll, I'll kick you a little bit, little bit of extra money for it. So, so Steve calls me, and he goes, hey, uh, you know, we're doing this thing where Ronnie jumps up there with us, it would be really cool if, like, you'd sneak into town and, and then when Ronnie jumps up, you would jump up there, too, and it'd be this big surprise. And uh, so that was the initial idea. That didn't work out because we couldn't get the expenses covered for me to fly back and make it worth it. So, but it, but it got us talking about putting it back together. Um, so that was in the, the, fall, the fall of um, 
2003. So then we, we talked about it some more, and we said, why don't we just put some shows together? So we did for the holidays, for, for like late December in 2003. So those were the first shows we did together. And it was so funny because we were... We were really worried because we weren't doing it with we were doing it without the bass player the original bass player and we were worried about because he wrote most of the song we were worried about calling it kicks so we called it uh four fifths of kicks the first couple gigs that's what we how we booked it so it wasn't officially kicks yet right <laughs> so so no but no, Oh, I was going to say, but we, we soon found out, we researched the name and found out the bass player had nothing to do with it. He didn't own the name. Nobody owned the name. So we bought it. So we own the name now. <laughs> so what's it like now playing? Because, you know, you've, you've had these, you know, I always, when I talk to bands who have been around for a long time, you have fans who, you know, some of them, you know, conceived <laughs> during your music and now their kids are grown. I mean, what's that like? What's your, when you go, when you play a kick show, you must see, you know, parents and with kids. I mean, what's it like when you sit there and then you see these fans that have, you know, stayed with you guys? I mean, that must be an amazing feeling. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and it's really cool that the, uh, you know, like the teenagers will, will show up, you know, they're, they're, they're kids and, and, and now the teenagers are getting into the 80s music. So it's, it's you know, it's crazy. It's, it's kind of like when I was a kid and I was into Chuck Berry, you know. So, yeah, you see, so you see older people, you see younger people, you see kind of in-between people, too. So it's a lot of different, you know, a, 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 a large span. <laughs> Now, with the festival, I mean, what is it like? I mean, when you play with Kicks and you play, then you're going to play the Rhino Bucket, you're playing with two different groups. How do you acclimate to one and then lose that to acclimate to the next one? I mean, because it's, it's a lot of songs you got to play. And I don't care, you know, if you're sober or not. I mean, even, even a sober person can get thrown off because they're playing a full set one night and the next night. I mean, anyone can have, but how do you sit there and keep, how are you going to keep yourself sane? Like, do you just once you get your 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 the your kicks persona and then you go to Rhino Bucket and your persona? How are you gonna juggle that? Uh, yeah, that is a challenge actually, and, and I've only had to do that a few times where, where Rhino Bucket and kicks were actually on the same bill, um, and I try to avoid that. But but if it does happen, I always request that there's at least maybe a, a band in between or at least an hour between, so I have time. Because I, I really have to, uh, well, because the way I do it normally, like say if it's just a kick show, um, like a week out from the show, I'll just start pounding the set list every night. I just go through it just so by the time I get to the show, I don't have to think about it. I could just jump up there and, you know, I'm not thinking, okay, what's next? What chorus, you know, like, what's the chorus of this song? Not, not that I've ever forgotten a kick song like that, but... But you know, I, I sort of gear my whole week up to that. And say, say if there's a kicks gig on one week, and then a Rhino Bucket gig the, the following week, I don't even think about the Rhino Bucket gig until the kicks gig's over, and then it's all Rhino Bucket until that gig. So I have to sort of switch gears like that. So when when the the shows are that close together, it is more of a challenge. Like 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 right now, I'm coming up on 
you know, this next week, I've got two club dates with uh, Rhino Bucket, which are, you know, 90-minute sets, and then, and then, uh, and then I have the 90-minute set for kicks on Friday, and then Saturday, or, yeah, Saturday is a 30-minute set with Rhino Bucket. So anyway, I've got two set lists that I'm cramming this week. <laughs> so it's, it's, I think it's like, uh, songs is that? It's like 38 songs or something crazy like that, or 34, I forget. A lot of songs. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of work. So, so now, is it going to be? Are you going to keep this going up, like playing with the both bands, and, and you know how how is that working for you? Well, I've been trying to, to keep it going. It's with Rhino Bucket's really. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to to to, uh, to have time for those guys, which is not fair to those guys. But occasionally. Um, you know, usually in the winter months, there's a little bit of a lull in the gigs, like with the kicks gigs even. Like after after the Christmas holidays, it's usually pretty barren until uh, the end of February. So um, what I do is I go off with Rhino Bucket. At that point, we go over to Europe, and we'll do like six weeks over there. And that's really, I mean, Rhino Bucket does really well over there. Not so well in the U.S., like... Uh, and that's one of the reasons I, I, you know, I can't really, uh, it's hard to play over here. It's hard to get enough money to justify going out, like, for an extended period of time. And, you know, Rhino Bucket is nowhere near the level of kicks as far as get paid. So, uh, like, like this week coming up, the only reason we're doing some gigs back there is because we got that M3 gig. And, um... So, you know, that way we can go there, do a few gigs leading up to it, and then do the M3 thing, and it, and it sort of, you know, pays for the trip. Right. Otherwise, otherwise it's like, you know, you try to, I, it, several times over the last few years, we've tried to put like a string of dates together, and and then a few weeks out, and, and added up the numbers, and it was like, this isn't going to work. Right. Because <laughs> you, you can't play, you can't play seven nights a week you can only play like the weekends and maybe one night during the week and then what do you do the rest of the nights you're just sort of hanging out somewhere paying for a hotel exactly it's crazy and meals right but in Europe in Europe you can you can tour all week long every single night of the week see that's cool there's always something well that's cool man well you know what Uh, yeah we gotta we gotta wrap up Uh, it's been a uh, so so your website is uh, uh, brianforsyth.com. Great website. I, uh, I enjoy it. I'm checking it out. I get a lot of info there. Uh, what's your Twitter? Tell, tell the listeners your Twitter. It is at real Brian Damage. Or let me make sure. It is. Look at that. It is at real Brian Damage. <laughs> oh, it is? So, so okay. people, go follow Brian. Go check out Kicks. Go check out Rhino Bucket. Follow them all out. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 600 episodes up there. Um, you can contact me at cooper at coopertalk.net. I also am doing uh, podcasting coaching and freelance PR. I have a few clients. I have uh, Jason Aldean's drummer, Rich Redmond, uh, two stand-up comics. There's two of my clients. So if you want PR help, send me the same message, cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, don't forget Instagram, coopertalk1. There's a lot of pictures from my cookbook when I had a health problem. I wrote the cookbook, so go to StopTheSalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. 
They're easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. None of that crazy stuff. You can get it at Amazon, but if you get it at slopthesalt.com, I make more money and I'll sign it for you. So people, go check out Brian. Check out his website. You'll go YouTube some kicks videos. Check it out. You know, you'll you'll dig that stuff. It's great music. It's you know, it wouldn't it's what made our country strong and we had great times. So anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. My money is hip as my guest. Don't forget, eat your vegetables, drink your water, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.